Hey, if you have your Bible today, go to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 today. We're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. So the last handful of weeks we've been talking about uh, Jesus' birth and the Christmas story. Today we're going to continue on and we're going to actually go all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to be in chapter 3. So again, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go there. If not, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me. If you have the Bible app on your phone, as always, I'll encourage you to hit that More tab, then Events, and you can find us there at Hillside Missionary Church. And you can actually follow along with everything you'd normally find in your bulletin right there, so you can skip the paper bulletin altogether. Matthew chapter 3. This takes a little bit of a turn uh, this, uh, in this chapter. So we were talking about the birth of Jesus and everything surrounding then. Uh, none of the gospel accounts really talk about adolescent Jesus. Uh, really, there's only one story uh, that he wanders off when he's 12, and that's it. That's the only account that we get in any of the gospels. And so here in chapter 3, we see Jesus as an adult, and he's going to start his earthly ministry. But before he does that... We're going to see this character, John the Baptist. Now, uh, Matthew doesn't include a whole lot about John the Baptist as far as uh, where he came from and, and, and where his origins are from, but the Gospel of Luke does. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard uh, from the Gospel of Luke and how uh, Zacharias, he's a, this priest, he has a, a wife, and he and his wife are elderly, and they can't have a, a, a child. And so uh, God comes to him and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. And, and his dad, Zacharias, he's like, no way, that's not going to happen. And he actually turns mute for the uh, duration of the pregnancy until they name him John the Baptist, as God uh, instructed them to. And so then he became unmute. But that's kind of John's origins. He's a relative of Jesus. If you have an old King James Bible, it will say cousin. Some other translations will also say that they're cousins. Uh, that word is just relative. So there's a little bit of an age gap. So some people think maybe their aunt, uncle, second cousin, three times removed, former roommate, anything weird like that. Uh, but regardless of that, we know that they are relatives. And so let's dive right in here. Matthew chapter 3. This is what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I don't know about you, but eating that would bug me. Okay, all right, okay, someone's awake. All right, verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of, of, about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, or, uh, to the Jordan to John to be baptized. 
John would have prevented him, saying, I need, you to, or I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is one of the few areas in the Bible where we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one scene coming together. It's a special scene, and we're going to talk about that today. Before we do, would you just go before the Lord and ask Him for His help as we apply this to our lives? Pray with me. God, thanks so much for Your Word, and we thank You that it's good, that it's perfect, that it's authoritative over our lives. And God, as we talk about this, I pray that, again, as we prayed earlier, it wouldn't be something to just come and, and hear about and leave unaffected. But God, that it would be something that we could internalize, that we could build our life upon your word. That we would be like a man who builds his house on the rock. That we would be steady on your truth. And that God, we would live that way. And God, that we could share our faith with others because we've done that. Jesus, we thank you so much for being our Lord and Savior. Help us to live our lives worthy of the calling in which you have called us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, have you ever gone to the store and seen someone weird? Uh, probably, right? Uh, if you haven't, uh, maybe you don't go shopping at all, right? There's some weird people out there, let's be honest. And sometimes it's kind of a topic of conversation, right? You see something weird or someone weird at the store and you get home and you're like, you are never going to believe what that guy did. And it, here's the thing. It could be one of two ways. It could be the type of thing where it's like, a, man, you are never going to believe what that guy did. And it was weird. Or you're never going to believe what that guy did. And it was awesome. Let me tell you about it. Right. Um, John the Baptist here. We're introduced to kind of a weird guy. It says in verse four that he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Um, now, camel's hair, uh, they were not uh, good to eat as far as uh, the rules in the Old Testament. The Jewish people cannot eat camels, but they can use them to clothe themselves. It's just not a very common thing to do. It's kind of a, a strange animal to use. Uh, it's not a cow. It's not uh, made from uh, plants. It's, it's a camel. That's kind of a weird thing. People typically wouldn't do that or have a, a leather belt around them. And this is the weirdest part, I think. He ate food, or his food were locusts. I mean, literal bugs. Uh, I was doing some studying about this earlier uh, this week, and it said that one of the uh, nations in the Middle East had perfected how to preserve locusts, uh, that you would be able to easily preserve them and take them with you. Uh, I kind of think of it as bug jerky, all right? So these are like jerky little bug chips. I know most of you are like, dude, it's almost lunchtime. What are you doing? I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, John's a weird guy, right? But he is. I mean, there are some practical things to what he's doing. He's wandering around. Honey, as you know, you can keep this in your cupboard, and there is an expiration date on it, but I've been told you can eat honey that's like decades old, and it's fine. I wouldn't recommend it, but I mean, that's what I've been told that you could do. So there's actually some practical things behind what John is doing. I mean, he's like the ultimate backpacking guide. Uh, my brothers and I are doing a backpacking trip 
this spring. I'm super pumped for it. I've been doing a lot of research on it. And food is one of the most difficult things to figure out. Like, what do you eat while you're on the trail? John's figured it out. He's like, dude, bugs and honey, man. It's awesome. They never go bad. Super easy to carry with you. Lightweight. And, you know, there's no cooking it. You just, you just, you just chomp on it. You can dip the bugs. In. Okay, sorry. Okay, too far. But John's a weird guy, right? I mean, this is a strange thing. And, and typically wouldn't think that this would really work. And you might look at this guy and go, what are you doing? And yet, this is what Jesus will tell us about John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, so we have the privilege of knowing, now that we have the full revelation of Scripture in front of us, hey, John the Baptist, he's got it going on, man. He worships God with everything. I mean, he has given his life to building up God's kingdom in a radical, radical way. I mean, the guy's walking around eating bugs, all right? That is radical. And Jesus says this about him. Among those born of women, there's no one greater. John the Baptist, he's the man. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at his message and his life today, and I want to give you some characteristics, some observations that as we go through this, we can see about John the Baptist, and we can look at in our own lives and say, man, maybe we could implement that as well. I want to give you seven characteristics of mature, godly Christians this morning from John the Baptist's message and life. So let's start right from the beginning. It says that he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Put that in your mind as a little tab. We'll go right back to that in just a sec. But I want to focus on this right now. Verse 2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is kind of a harsh message, right? Um, when I was in preaching class, uh, they said, You know, Josh, you really you need to start off with a nice opener. Uh, today, that was the weird uh, shopping people, right? Like, this is a nice opener. It hooks people. And then kind of just gently push them into the truth, right? This is what John the Baptist says. He totally flips things around. He goes, Hey, you need to repent. The kingdom of heaven's at hand, right? I mean, any, any preaching uh, instructor would probably say, let's soften that up a little bit, right? Let's, re, let's rethink about how to communicate that. that. That could turn people off, right? Like, and yet John, he's doing this right from the get-go. He's like, hey, it's time, all right? We've, we've had this long enough, this Judaism, these rules, and we've hardened our heart towards God. We need to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist realizes something, and that's that his relative Jesus is about to start his earthly ministry. In fact, Jesus is about to show up at the scene. We see that at the end of this passage. And he realizes this, and he's trying to prepare people's hearts, and he's saying, hey, it's time to get ready. Jesus is here. Something new is happening, and you need to be ready for this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to give you seven characteristics of mature godly Christians, and it starts off real basic, and we'll get right into it. But it means that you've already come to Jesus and repented of your sins. Now, I want to explain this real quickly because they go hand in hand. You can't repent of your sins and not accept Jesus and have that work, right? You can feel bad all you want. And you could say, man, I am so sorry that I did this, God. But if you don't take that next step and say, I'm accepting your free gift of forgiveness that Jesus has made available to us on the cross through his sacrifice on the cross, then it doesn't get you forgiveness. And the same way, too. If you say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, but you don't repent of your sins and you just keep doing the sins that you've always done and you just kind of keep in that same cycle that you've always done and you don't allow God to transform you, man, it doesn't work either. You're not living the life that God's created you 
to live. These things go hand in hand. This is why Peter in Acts, this is the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to tons and tons of people, and he'll say to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, these two things go hand in hand. Yes, you're repenting. Yes, you're accepting Jesus Christ, and it goes hand in hand. Now, the enemy is going to try and make you feel badly about your sin, and keep you from coming to Jesus. 2 Corinthians tells us this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What is Paul saying as he writes to the church in Corinth? He's saying, hey, listen, there's two types of grief. There's the grief the enemy wants to put on you to pull you away from Christ, to tell you you're a terrible person, God wants nothing to do with you. And then there's godly grief. There's godly grief that God can put on your heart to say, hey, you've sinned, and I want you to come back to me. I want to offer you my forgiveness. I want to offer you my salvation. This is the godly grief that Paul is referring to as he writes to the church in Corinth. So that's the first thing I think we see in John's life, that we come to Jesus and we've repented of our sins. I told you that we'd come back to verse 1. Take a look at it with me again. It says, In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, think about this. There are major metropolitan centers within Israel. Uh, Jerusalem is one of them. Uh, John the Baptist is not in a big metropolitan area. He's out in the wilderness. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. John the Baptist is trying to reach as many people as he can to prepare their hearts for Jesus to come. And where God leads him to go is in the middle of nowhere. Okay, so this would be like me, um, and, and I'd say, hey, you know what? There's a lot of people in South Bend uh, that need Jesus. Let's plan a church uh, for the people of South Bend. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down State Road 23. We're going to go south about an hour till it dead ends into a field and a country road. And we're going to plan a church out there to reach the people of South Bend. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense, Josh. That, that's crazy. Like, why don't you pick, like, a nice spot, like, maybe on a busy road where a lot of people see you, right? Like, that makes more sense. And yet, God leads John the Baptist out to the wilderness, and then we see that it works. Even though he's a crazy man, and he's running around eating bugs and wearing a camel. I mean, this is crazy stuff. In verse 5, we see this. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan we're going out to him, and they were, were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We see, like, this works, which tells me this. This could only be the type of thing where John has been led by the Holy Spirit to go out there, to lead people out there to repent of their sins. And it makes me think, man, God knows something that our conventional wisdom doesn't tell us. We need to be prayerfully, uh, prayerful about this to say, God, I want you to lead me in this. That we are praying and praying continually and saying, what do you want me to do? Because I need to be led by you and I need to be transformed by you. Conventional human wisdom would say this plan would not work. And yet prayerfulness has led John to do something that works and it works exceedingly well, what's a characteristic of a mature, godly Christian? That you're prayerful, and because you're prayerful, you're being led by the Holy Spirit, and you're in the process of being transformed 
by him. I know that's a long one. Sorry about that. I didn't even have room to put in the prayerfulness. You can put that in the notes off to the side and on your outline if you're following along there. But that's what it looks like to be a believer in Jesus Christ and say, God, I want to do everything I can to worship you. How I need to be prayerful, I need to be led by you, and I need to be transformed by you. It's like what Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, that we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. By testing, we may discern what the will of God is, what is perfect and acceptable and good. This is the, 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 the message that after we've accepted Jesus, we are now transformed by Jesus. We have accepted the Holy Spirit. We are led by Him, and we are prayerful in that process. John 16 tells us this. This is Jesus talking. He says, when the Spirit comes, sorry, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus, He's having this long discourse, this long message to His disciples. And He's telling them, hey, the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to help you. He's going to guide you. He's going to transform you to live the life that I created you to live. 1 John 3.24 tells us, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is a package deal as well, that when we repent, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we now have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we need to turn that corner to say, God, I relinquish control over my entire life. Which, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you realize is not as easy as me saying that from on stage. Oh yeah, I just relinquish everything that I have. God, here it is. Uh, I can do anything, right? I, and, uh, and I'll give you, give you my whole life, right? That's a difficult process. That's really hard to say, God, you have everything. You have my thoughts. You have my intentions. You have my finances. You have my relationships. You have my time. You have everything. But that's what it means to be transformed by God, that we hand over everything that we have. So John, he's out there baptizing people. And then in verse 7, he gets interrupted. Look at this. In verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, this is probably not an insult in our culture today. But back then, this would be a massive insult. Uh, snakes are not very highly regarded uh, in Scripture. It says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, this is interesting. He sees these Pharisees, these Sadducees. And um, uh, as we get into the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see these guys a lot. They're the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there's two different sects. The Sadducees are more of a liberal sect. They're a minority within it, but they have the majority of the control as far as uh, Israel goes. They control things even though they're the minority. Pharisees are a little bit more of the conservative party. There's more of them as far as the religious leaders go, but they don't have much control over the nation of Israel. And the difference is they believe almost all of the same things, but the Sadducees do not believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in any of that. They believe that God has created humanity, that He is in, still interacting with us, but when we die, we will return to dust and that we will cease to exist. The Pharisees 
believe, no, there are angels. There's a spiritual life. We are eternal beings, right? We, we either go with Jesus and live with Him forever or we go to hell. There's these two realities after death. And so Jesus will confirm, yes, the Pharisees are correct. Even though the Sadducees have all the power, He'll side with the Pharisees to say, no, you guys are the ones in the right. But I want to point this out to you. John sees them from a, a distance coming. They don't like what John's doing. Because they like their power. They like their influence. And they don't like some weirdo who eats bugs in the desert to take away their influence over Israel. And John, he knows what they're about to do. And he interacts with them by saying, Hey, hey, you, you, you bunch of snakes. Who warned you about what's going to happen? Right? I mean, this is harsh. He realizes they're there to distract him and to distract him from the ministry that God has called him to do to prepare people's hearts to what he wants them to do. What does he do? John is not easily swayed from the truth. He, he knows God's mission for him, and he's doing it, and he's not even allowing things into his life that can sway him away from the truth. Mature godly Christians, this is the third thing if you're following along in your note outline, are not easily swayed from the truth. Paul will write one of his letters to a church in Ephesus, and he will tell them, so that we are no longer children tossed and to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind and doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There are people who will try and teach you anything that you want to hear. In fact, Scripture will even tell us in the, later, in the later times that people will surround themselves with teachers to crave what they want to hear. In other words, you can find a teacher uh, for whatever you want for, to, to be taught. And they'll say, oh yeah, it's definitely scriptural. And what Paul is writing is he's saying, hey, don't be that way. Don't be people who either seek that out or who hear that and are swayed uh, to and fro, as he says here, by the wind. But look at this. He says, no, 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 no. Don't be that way. Don't be these children. It's like what Paul will say to Timothy. Timothy is actually the pastor at this church in Ephesus. He'll say this, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, look at this, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul is telling to Timothy, he's saying, hey, it's difficult out there. And I need you not to be easily swayed. There's going to be things that pop up in culture that are really popular thoughts out there. That Man, and it's so easy to just hop on that boat and say, yeah, absolutely, that feels really good. And what Paul's saying is he's saying, no, 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 I need you to hold fast on God's truth. Jesus will say, the person who holds fast on my truth will be like a man who built his house upon a rock. While others build their houses upon sand. And when the storm comes, you guys know this from, from Sunday school and the songs. When the storm comes, whose house is there? The man who built his house upon a rock. That's what it's like when you say, God, I, I am surrounding my life on your word. I will build my life and my belief system upon your word. Paul will even say this at the end of this letter to Timothy. He'll say, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. He's saying, hey, don't swerve. Stay solid on God's truth and on God's word. 
Whenever someone wants to talk about theology with me, I'm always open to that. But I find many times people want to say, yeah, you know, like the Bible says, uh, you know, like this. Or, or there's a general theme in the Bible that will say this or that. And, you know, I, I just really, I, I, I believe that. I latch on to that. And most of the time I'll say something like this. Okay, show me the verse that says that. And most of the time they can't. And what happens is we kind of get these ideas in our head, right, of, well, you know, the Bible's, you know, it, it kind of says this, and so this is what I'm going to latch on to, and, and that's a godly idea, right? And it's so easy to just swerve off the truth. Stay in God's Word, just like Proverbs chapter 4 says. It says, let your eyes look directly forward. Let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. We've got a laser focus on what God wants us to do and His truth and in His Word. Mature, godly Christians are not easily swayed from the truth. So after this interaction where John calls them out on this, this is what I really like about John. He doesn't say just to the religious leaders, oh man, you're, you're terrible people uh, and, and have this huge insult to them. But he actually points them in the direction of truth. I think this is a picture of what uh, it would look like for us to interact with some very contentious people who are not on God's side. Look at this. Not only does he stop them from having this argument with them, he also guides them to the truth. Look at this in verse 8. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's essentially telling them, hey, your family lineage is not enough. Your family lineage is not enough to get you into heaven. You need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to be led by God, and you need to bear good fruit, as he says in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he'll give them this analogy starting in verse 10. He says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is he doing? This is a, 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 an analogy that Scripture will say often, that people are like trees. And if we bear good fruit, that's a good thing. The only way that we can do that is, if you read John 15, to stay connected to Jesus. He gives the same analogy that He is the vine, that we are the branches, that the only way we can bear that life, that bear that fruit, is by staying connected with Jesus. And He's giving them this analogy to say, hey, what's the fruit in your life? Because if you have a tree that is not bearing good fruit, what is done to that tree? It's cut down. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now, he's really, uh, he's getting to something culturally we don't understand. Um, back then, uh, the lowest job for a household servant is to uh, uh, wash the master's feet and to carry around his sandals. I mean, this is the lowest job. And John, he's saying, hey, I'm not even worthy of the lowest job. I'm not even worthy to be around Jesus. And he's saying he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll explain that here in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's saying, hey, listen, I need you to bear 
good fruit. He's pointing these Pharisees, these Sadducees in the direction of truth to say, hey, I get it. You, you think you know God. You think you're on the right path here, but you're not. I need you to bear fruit. Your life should be completely transformed by God. What's a characteristic of a mature, godly Christian? It's that you're bearing good fruit. You're bearing fruit in your life. And if you look at that and you're like, okay, so what does that mean? Give me some, give me some real words to go along with that. Galatians 5 gives us the words about what that fruit is. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is it saying? He's saying, hey, listen, this is what your life should look like. You should be loving. You should be joyful. You should be peaceful and patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. As a believer of Jesus Christ, who has given their life to Jesus, these things should be in your life. And you should be able to look back at your life and say, God has made me more loving. God has made me a more joyful person. God has made me a more peaceful and patient and kind person. A good and faithful, gentle and self-controlled person. This is what God has done for me. This is the transformational power that He has in my life. To take me from someone who hates people to someone who loves people. From someone who walks around and says, man, life is terrible, to someone who has the joy of the Lord in their life. To take someone who is anxious and a mess on the inside to having peace. To take someone from who is, is just easily angered to having the most patience ever. To take someone who is mean and make them kind. To take someone who is bad and make them good. To take someone who is unfaithful and make them faithful. To take someone who maybe has an anger problem and make them gentle and self-controlled. This is what God can and will do for our lives if we allow Him to do that. And Jesus, He'll even say in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, that we should beware of people without these, these people who claim to know Him, but yet don't bear fruit in their lives. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, he's saying, hey, if you see someone who claims to love me, but is not loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and self-controlled, there's something off. There's something wrong with this and that you should beware of these. He goes on, he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, look at this, you will recognize them by their fruits. So I want to ask you a question. If someone looked at your life, how would they recognize you? What kind of fruit do you have in your life? Do you, are, are you loving and joyful and patient, patient and peaceful and, and kind and good and gentle and self-controlled? Or do you struggle in some of those areas of your life? And that's okay if you're looking at your life and saying, man, I got some work to do. Hey, welcome to the club. We all do, all right? There's problems in all of our lives. We've got to be open and honest about that and recognize that and say, Jesus, you need to transform me more. This is a lifelong process of looking less like us and more like Him, and bearing more and more and more fruit. 
I want to look at the end of the story here before we end up, uh, run out of time. It says, when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John didn't want to do it at first. It says that John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and you come to me? And yet Jesus pushes him, and he realizes John's thoughts here. And Jesus is answering him, hey, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says, then he consented. In other words, John didn't want to do what Jesus wanted him to do at first. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is good. I need you to do this. And then John simply did it. Here's another characteristic of a mature godly Christian. You can submit to God's will over your own will. In other words, you can say, God, this is not really what I want to do. However, I realize you want me to do this. Or you could say, God, I don't necessarily get that. If I were to make truth, then I would, I, would, I would put different rules down. But you have said this in your word, and so I'm submitting to your word over my own thoughts. James chapter 4 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. This is the type of attitude that we should have. And it's the type of attitude that Jesus, God the Son, actually had in his own life. Look at this. This is in Luke chapter 22. It's right before he'll go and die on the cross. He'll say to God the Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Literally, what are you saying? Is he saying, hey God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way to have salvation available for everyone other than me dying a horrific, terrible, torturous death on the cross, then would you let it be so? But... He submits to God the Father, and he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God the Son submitting to God the Father. And we should be able to do that as well. If God the Son, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, can submit to God the Father, then we, as humble human beings, ought to be able to do that as well. It's the attitude that Proverbs chapter 3 talks about when it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your words, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Submit to God over your own thoughts. I have two more characteristics. They're just overviews of this entire chapter. So let me give them to you real quick before we run out of time. Um, throughout the entire chapter, John is sharing his faith. He's, he's, he's calling out people, hey, repent, let's get you baptized, which, by the way, is that natural step. We're going to have a baptismal service here in the next month or two. If you would like to be baptized, if you've accepted Jesus and you've not been baptized, please come and talk to me. That's the next step that we say, hey, this is an outward symbol of what's happened on the inside, that we have uh, died with Christ and we're risen up with Him again. That's what baptismal or baptism, baptizing is all about. And so, John, he's, he's having this message. He's, what is he doing? He's sharing his faith. It's what we prayed about earlier here in service, that we would be able to share our faith. And mature, godly Christians can do that. They share their faith. There's an ongoing sharing of faith. You're willing and able to have those conversations with people, both with people you know and with strangers if God leads you to do that. Why? Because this is what Jesus has called us all to do. This is the Great Commission in Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Paul, as he writes his letter to the church in Rome, will uh, 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 really talk about this idea, about how are people going to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is, if they're never told who he is. Romans chapter 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's a logical question Paul's bringing up. He's saying, hey, listen, how is your neighbor without someone going and talking to them about Jesus ever going to accept Jesus? How is your unbelieving coworker ever going to accept Jesus if no one ever talks to them about who he is? How's your unbelieving relative ever going to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior if you don't talk to him? This is what Paul is saying. He says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Missions is something that's really important both to our denomination and to our church individually. We just heard from uh, one of the missionaries that we've uh, helped to support uh, last Sunday. I loved hearing that story. I hope you did too. I hope it encouraged you in your faith. And this is what it reminds me of. As Paul is writing, he's saying, hey, this is a good thing. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we help to support them. This is why we pray so adamantly for them. Because someone needs to be sent for them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And in your life, God is going to put people in your life for you to do the same. You may not be called to go thousands of miles overseas in a developing country to go tell people about Jesus, but you are called in your specific circumstance to do that. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, In your hearts honor Christ as the Lord is holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And then he gives us a little caveat. He says, yeah, but do that with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He's saying, hey, listen, in all circumstances, in all seasons, be willing to tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. But you can't be a jerk about it, okay? You've got to do it with gentleness and respect, as it says here in the end of verse 15. And he says, have a good conscience about it. In other words, go to talk to people. Don't be a jerk and have a good conscience about it. It means, hey, you got to be prayerful about it. you got to ask God to say, hey, would you lead me? Would you help me to be transformed so that I can have a good conscience? And when I go talk to that person, I can tell them what, they, uh, what you have done in my life. And I can live as a witness of who you are. A mature, godly Christian shares their faith. And then lastly, I just wanted to say this. John lived his life radically for Christ. I mean... Come on, he went out with camel's hair and ate bugs and honey in the desert. I mean, even as someone who uh, likes camping and backpacking, that's a little too far even for me, right? I mean, that, that is, that's out there. And yet that's what God called him to do. And he didn't even just do it like, kind of like, oh, well, God, I guess if you want me to do this, I'll go out and I'll preach this in the desert and blah, 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 blah. He really takes it on, right? I mean, the guy's eating bugs. Like, I mean, it's crazy out there. He lives his life radically for Christ as mature, godly Christians. My prayer for all of us is that we do the same. 
that we are living our lives radically for Christ, that our life looks different because of what Jesus has done for us. Just like it says in 2 Corinthians, that for now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once were regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Look at this. Therefore, if anyone who is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As a mature, godly Christian who is living their life radically for Christ, your life looks radically different than it would otherwise. Not only are you bearing fruit and you're more loving and joyful and patient and, and kind and, and good and that whole list, not only do you have that in your life, but your life also looks different. The way that you live your life, the way that you spend your money, the place you live, the way that you interact with people, the thoughts you think, they're completely different. Um, I've shared this with you before, but man, the snow out there, it looks great, but it's not my thing. It's terrible. I, I, I hate going outside and being cold. My, my hands, I mean, literally when I was a kid, they would get so dry, they bleed. I mean, it's terrible. You know where that doesn't happen? Place where it doesn't snow. Like like place where it's like 80 degrees year round. That's awesome. If it were up to me, I'd live in like Hawaii or San Diego. That's it. Maybe Southern Florida. That's stretching it though. It's a little humid there. Okay. I mean, but I don't. Why? Because this is where God has called me to live my life. And for you, you should be able to look at your life and say, my life is radically different. Where I live my life, how I live my life is radically different. Just like John the Baptist, because of what Christ has done for me and what he's called me to do. He's transformed me and I'm prayerfully led by him and I'm not easily swayed from the truth, but I have built my life upon his solid truth. And because of that, I can bear fruit and I can submit to his will over my own and I'm sharing my faith and I live radically for Christ. So let me ask you a question. What needs to change in your life as you look, as you look at these things, as you look at the mature godly characteristics here of mature Christians? What do you need to work on? What fruit do you need to bear? There's some questions on the back of your note outline or if you're following along in your Bible app. Um, there's some questions. I really encourage you to dive into those this week. Or maybe later today or sometime. Maybe, maybe if you've got some quiet time this week. Look at those questions. Go through that. It's a guide to show you, hey, what does your life look like now? And wherever you are, you are. I want to let you know that's okay. Don't be shamed by the enemy. Be led with a godly grief to say, God, I'm not where I want to be, and I know I'm not where you want me to be, but I want to work on that. I want to relinquish control of my life. And I want for these characteristics, the characteristics that John shows in his message and his life, to be a part of my life as well. That's a difficult road to go down. It's really hard. Don't let that be like a New Year's resolution that fails January 2nd. Let that be an attitude that you have in your life, day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out. And that when you look back at your life, when you're old and gray-haired and, man, you look back and go, man, God did some amazing work in my life. God transformed me. And I gave to him, and I'm so glad I did. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. And I pray that for all of us as we look at these things, these 
these characteristics of mature godly Christians. Again, God, it wouldn't be just something we look at and say, that's a nice list and move on. But God, it would be something that we say, I desperately, desperately want to be that person. I want to be the person that is living the life that you created me to live. That you've given me life and life to the fullest. And because of that, I I can turn away from the things I want. Because I realize, man, things that you have for me, God, they're so much better. So, so much better than anything this world can offer me. And so, God, I I give you my life. I, I lay it down. Would you help for us to have that attitude? To say, God, here it is. I give you everything. And I want to build up your kingdom. Just like John did. Just like Jesus gives us the example of how to do. God, we pray for that. Give us wisdom. Guide us, Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.